0: Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. friends who listen to Future Primitive. I'm on the phone with Dave Jackie. He has been a student of ecology and design since the 1970s and has run his own ecological design firm, Dynamics Ecological Design, since 1984. Dave is an engaging and passionate teacher of ecological design and permaculture and a meticulous designer. He has consulted on, designed and built and planted landscapes, homes, farms, and communities in many parts of the United States, as well as overseas. He has published a book called Edible Forest Gardens, with Chelsea Green Publishing. It is a groundbreaking two-volume work that spells out and explores the key concepts of forest ecology and applies them to the need of natural gardeners in temperate climate. I also want to add that Dave will be in Santa Fe On May 31st, he will give a 7 to 9 p.m. talk, and then he will give a weekend workshop June 1st and 2nd, and this is an event that is uh, put on by CarboneconomySeries.com. And so, I'm in Santa Fe as well, and I want to welcome you, Dave. Dave.
1: Thank you very much,
0: Joanna. Good to be here. Good. So, I, I, I have a funny question for you first. I, I, I'm fascinated by roots, because by Uh roots, by roots, because I'm fascinated by the patterns that connect us. So, if you would begin to talk to us about your friends, the plant roots. (laughs)
1: <laughs> okay. Listen, uh, that is a, that is an interesting place to start. It's great though because it's really I mean, I, you know, I love like I love the idea that the, the word radical means of pertaining to or relating to a root. So you're you're being radical here, Joanna. Um Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um then I'll get radical with you. So, you know, plant roots are of course essential you know, when we talk about forest garden design or forest ecology, it's very hard to know what's going on down there in the soil with the plants. And if you look at trees in particular, trees and shrubs, more than half of their body—and actually, a lot of plants—more than half of their body is actually below the ground. So, it's pretty important that we that we try to understand this. And um, you know, in in my book, uh, I did a fair amount of research on on this piece, because uh, Robert Quirk has a book uh, that he wrote some years ago called Designing and Maintaining Your Edible Landscape Naturally, a very long title. It was a really, was a really uh, seminal book for me in, to, in my design practice, very helpful, and he had a lot of images that he'd gotten from, particularly this one researcher, John Weaver, back in the teens. Uh, did a lot of research on roots of plants. He was one of the first plant ecologists. So I went back and found some of the same... References and when did dig, a lot of other digging, and it's very fascinating stuff. Um, and there's a lot of debate. Uh, Robert Cork has since written a book called Roots Demystified," which actually I haven't had a chance to read yet, but I hear it's very good. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of myths that we have out there, and I, I'm sure Robert and I have disagreements about about what what's actually going on down there. But uh, of course, you know, not neither not neither of us really actually knows <laughs>
2: because mm-hmm.
1: I'm sure every planet is doing it differently, but. Um, you know, some plants, some trees have a certain pattern to their root structure, That, like taprooted tree, hickories, uh, walnuts, uh, chestnuts, some of those kind of trees. They tend to have a taproot, and, and a lot of those taproot trees, if they don't have a deep soil that put their taproot into they're under stress.
2: Mm-hmm. Other
1: plants, like red maple, uh, its root will adapt to its environment, almost right out of the seed, and other species are somewhere in the in the middle, where they'll they'll have a certain pattern for a time, and then if it doesn't, if it's not an adaptive pattern for where they happen to be growing, they'll change their pattern. So it's it's uh, it's really important information, and there are some patterns that tr- plants tend to have, um, and we spent uh, for edible forest gardens, Eric Konsmeyer, my co-author and I spent. A lot of time researching roots of this, we had a database of 625 plants in the back of volume two of the book, and we were able to find root pattern data for about half of those species, which is the largest compendium of root pattern data that, we've, that I've seen anywhere. Wow. Um, and I'm glad to have been part of making that happen. Part of what we want to do with that information is when we're designing polycultures of plants, a so polyculture being any patch of ground that has more than one species of plant growing in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want to try and mix plants that have different root structures, different root patterns, so that we can have less competition below ground. Because by having less competition below ground, the plants can put more energy into producing leaves and stems and fruit or whatever, whatever it is that we want to eat. They'll produce more of it if they have less competition. So that's, that's one of the factors that we're looking at in designing forest gardens.
0: Okay. Okay. So for those who are not uh, clued into this, I shall say, in a Cartesian way, uh, most of us think the forest is the forest and the garden is the garden and the vegetable garden is the vegetable garden. So how do you bring these things together?
1: Yeah, well, by design. Uh, design is really the critical nexus of of all these things. It's actually the the critical nexus for our future, in my opinion, um, is the inherent human capacity to design. And I do believe that that capacity is inherent in all human beings, unless you're severely damaged somehow. So we're all designers. We all design all the time. And by understanding how forest ecosystems or actually any ecosystem works, we we can mimic that ecosystem in the way we design a garden. If you live in the prairies, you should be modeling your gardening on the prairies. If you live in the forest, you should be gardening, modeling your gardening on the forest. If you live in the desert, model it on the desert. And, you know, I'm living in the northeastern U.S. We have a lot of, a lot of uh, forest around here, and that's my model. Now, there's forests that grow in, you know, most parts of the world. There's some sort of forest or savanna, which is a very open forest with, with uh, maybe prairie plants in between the trees. Widely spaced trees. Um, you know, you've got shrublands. You've got all kinds of things that you can mimic, that we can mimic, um, and we're we're really trying to understand what are the properties of those systems, those ecosystems. What are the principles that guide the behavior of those systems, and what are the patterns and processes that make those systems run? and behave the way they do. And we're trying to understand all four of those, the properties, the principles, the patterns, and the processes. At a, at a very deep level, that is what we're mimicking when we design an ecosystem garden or a forest garden, if you want to be specific about which ecosystem you're mimicking. So so we're designing a garden that grows food, fuel, fiber, fodder, fertilizer, pharmaceuticals, and fun, among other things.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and we're using ecological understanding in order to do that but it's a designed and managed garden and that's the critical thing people a lot of people hear the phrase forest garden or edible forest garden they think you're just going out and harvesting wild things in the woods which you can do Mm -hmm. but i'm actually much more interested in the the deeper uh design of of a design garden
0: i see i see so now when you come to Santa Fe, will you be speaking to people about a desert garden, about how to mimic the deserts in our designs here?
1: I hope to do that. I don't know the deserts very well, but what I, my plan for this, this uh, Santa Fe workshop is to put out, especially on Friday night, uh, the core concepts and principles and uh, some examples and talk about how, you know, how what we can learn for human society and how we design a human society using these ideas, because there's a lot of very interesting uh, uh, co- parallels. Uh, actually, you know, humans are, we are nature. Nature has become us. And so the, all the principles of ecology apply to us as well. And if we apply those principles in the design of our human society, we will be much, much better off, in my humble opinion. Um, so I'll be talking about that on Friday night. But then, then during the weekend, we're going to be, you know, I'm going to have some days uh, before the workshop where I'll be traveling around and getting to know some of the local ecosystems. And then we'll 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 draw out of the uh, people in the workshop, you know, what people's experience is, and we'll draw out of the landscape that we're interacting with at Santa Fe Community College and in the neighboring area. Given my experience in, in the in the mountains and stuff when I'm up there in the in the in the forests around there. Um, we'll be looking at, at all those different, uh, models and, and how we can use them. But focused, I know forest best, so we'll probably be focusing more on that, you know, and I know down that way this fire is, is an issue, um, and, uh, recovering from fire, preventing fire, and we'll, we'll, we'll touch on that topic as well.
0: Okay, so maybe, not maybe, but surely in a few minutes, we'll come back to um, forest fires and what you've observed about that. But what I'd really like to hear about right now is I'd like you to unpack this business of us as a human being, our relationship with the land and how we can learn about ourselves from cooperating and mimicking the land.
1: Lot to unpack there. Um, you know, I, I've been I've been interested in ecology since I was probably 14 years old. I'm now I just turned 53 a couple of days ago, so it's been almost 40 years I've been I've been paying attention to this stuff. And I I studied ecology in college. Um, I I got interested in land use planning. It was the only thing I could find that was headed the right direction. Then I heard about permaculture, and and that that really took me many steps beyond where I'd gotten on my own. And the whole idea of design is, is, a really, is a really key piece. And so how do we design a human culture that, that mimics ecosystems? And, and the core, as I've pondered this and observed and interacted in, in natural systems and in human systems all these years, I've really been pondering what is the big big idea, what's the big issue that we're facing, what's the core problem, yeah. and I've, I've really come to realize, I've played this exercise with people in my courses, my permaculture design courses that I've run many times, where I do an exercise where I say, okay, let's brainstorm, just make a list, what are all the problems we're trying to solve with permaculture, we just make all the, you know, pollution and, and uh, climate chaos and, and deforestation, you know, just run the list sexism, socialism, you know, whatever it is, not socialism, but, uh, you know, social injustice, whatever.
2: Mm-hmm. And,
1: um, and almost always some, some idea about disconnection, alienation, separation gets thrown into that mix. And then we go through that list and we say, okay, what are the causes? What are the effects? Mm-hmm. Which, ones are, which ones are more at the root of what's the issue here? And we always, just, you know, when I just facilitate that process and don't guide it, we almost always end up with disconnection or alienation or the belief that we are separate from nature as being the core problem of all the problems that we face as a society right now. Mm-hmm. And so this idea that we are separate from nature is just complete hooey. I mean, how how can we actually believe that? But it's the way it's built into our language. It's built into our culture. We've all been brought up, in, this, in Western culture at least, we've all been brought up with this idea that humans are the top of the... Pyramid, we're you know we we're we're we've got dominion if not domination over nature, and nature is here to serve us or you know whatever the attitude is, it's still a belief that we are separate, um and that that you know what goes on out there well it's not going to affect what goes on in here and that's just that's just not true it's just patently false and it's it's provably so and I don't really need to say more about that so the idea of that idea that that, we're, that our, our main problem is that belief that we're separate, really it comes comes to the fore when we're looking at uh, permaculture systems. And I've been observing permaculture for 30 years uh, plus. And, you know, I've seen a lot of failures in the permaculture movement. And uh, almost always the failures are on the social level. And the core of those social problems is always because of people's inner landscapes, <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, then I look at that, and I realize, or right, we've got people who are addicted, people who are believing we're separate, people who are acting as if, you know, the, 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 their behavior has no effect, or they don't care what the effect of their behavior is on other people, or, or other people who are conversely totally giving up on themselves and focusing on someone else. You know, there's all kinds of patterns that, But it's all about separation and not getting our needs met and not not being able to be clear about healthy boundaries and, and, you know, being enmeshed or completely disconnected. And and so uh, as we look at how ecosystems operate, it has the opportunity to teach us about membranes, healthy boundaries, Mm -hmm. and about, you know, being clear about what is our ecological role, what what am I designed to do? What's my purpose? What's my function in the, in the ecosystem? How can I best serve? This is a question that is really central to all of it. When I'm designing a forest garden, I'm thinking, how does this plant operate? What does it need? How can I take care of the plant itself? How can I place it in relation to other species and in a context where its needs will get met and its gifts will be able to be used by other elements in the system? Because if we disconnect that plant, it is going to suffer because its needs won't get met and it won't be in a, in a context where they can tolerate the climate or whatever, um, and it will have products or yield that will not be used. And that is a waste and it's a cause of suffering. And so much of our suffering and the problems we have in our culture are because we're not paying attention to needs and context and gifts and just that one idea there can go many different directions but you know that is one of the learnings from how we design ecosystems how we design social systems there's there's a whole a whole chapter in volume one of my book on the social systems the social structure of eco forest ecosystems and the learnings that come out of that are just so many it's it's kind of hard to get started
0: (laughs) yeah yeah and i was thinking um as you go deeper into understanding what you are rooted in in terms of uh, in terms of nature uh, uh has it changed your relationships with people and the way you um and the way you relate to uh, in your love life and friendship life and so on
1: yes but you know it's amazing how challenging it is to change one's own paradigm
0: <laughs> yeah
1: I'm definitely facing that myself right now. I've been going through some hard times this last bunch of months. I think a lot of people are. I mean, we're 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 going through a major planetary crisis is beginning here, you know. So, so uh, it's it's a it's a hard times for a lot of folks. But um, certainly, um, it, it challenges me to know myself better and to love myself more.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: Self hatred is a huge deal. Mm-hmm. I have really come to realize how pervasive and insidious self-hatred is and all the different forms it takes and it's, it's self-hatred is a, just another form of self-separation
0: yeah. which
1: is what we do when we separate ourselves from nature we're separating ourselves from ourselves
0: beautiful yeah and
1: exactly. that is just self that's just a form of self-hatred and if we don't confront that and generate compassion for ourselves and for each other uh then we're lost yeah, we're never make it as a species. Exactly. we just to go by the wayside.
0: Exactly. I mean, is there, is, are there bad plants? Are there bad trees? Are there.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I love that question. I love that question. You know, there's a really strong, for the second time that I know of in human history, there's a very strong native plant movement uh, in the U.S. these days. The first really strong native plant movement was in 1930s Germany. Uh-huh. And uh, David Theodoropoulos wrote this really hard-hitting book called Invasion Biology, Critique of a Pseudoscience. That is, it's really, it's very, it's kind of inflammatory. Uh, it's really challenging. But boy, did he raised some really important questions for us to look at. And the whole idea of a bad plant whoa, is that loaded? So, you know, bad is a value judgment. And one of the things I've learned by doing and practicing and and refining my ecological design process is that it's really important to be very clear about what's the difference between observation and interpretation. When I go out on a piece of land and I'm saying, okay, what do I observe and what does it mean for my design? Those are really critical things to distinguish between, because if I mix human values into my observation, then I'm unconsciously influencing the solutions that I'm going to find. So if we say there are plants that are bad, and and the term invasive plant Mm -hmm. assumes that the plant is bad. The word invasion, if you look it up in the dictionary, it means to attack with the purpose of conquering. That's not what plants do. That's human attention. We're projecting our own stuff onto a plant or an animal. They're, that plant or animal is just being itself. It's just doing what it does. Yeah. And it's in a context that's different than it was somewhere else. And so it's behaving differently. And that plant probably does not behave the same in a different context. If we call a plant bad or invasive then we're saying the plant is at fault when that behavior of invasiveness can only exist in the relationship between the plant and its context.
0: That's right. That's right.
1: That is, that is the truth of ecology. Context is everything. Yes. And if we ignore that, we are just making the same mistake of separation, once again, because we're thinking that it's the plant's fault, we're separating that plant from its context, and we're not seeing reality.
0: Oh, generalization is separation. I see, I see. <laughs>
1: well, yeah, yeah that's a, that was a generalization.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, they've got, got me, you got me. <laughs> so um, take a little moment and, if you wish, describe to us your best moment as seeing a tree or a plant or a fruit or a zucchini for what <laughs> <laughs> for what it is and not in relation to who you are. Your best uh, moment of of contemplating
1: right. Well here's here's the paradox, okay? I said it's really important to, to, to stir between observation and interpretation. Yeah, and there's a there's Buddhist saying that says there's no observation only interpretation. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: because how can I see it except from my own perspective? You know, my eyeballs see a certain range of elect- of the of the electromagnetic spectrum, so I can only see that portion of the zucchini that's in that spectrum. I can't, I can't see the far infrared portion of the Zucchini plant, you know? Yeah. And so, 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 you know, this this whole humility and respect that has to come into that. So, but I will do my best to describe a moment that you're, like you're talking about. So maybe the best thing for me to do is to just go outside and do that right now. I don't know. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm walking out into my garden, into my into my land and and I there's a, a lilac flowering and I know I just look at what are what are the colors. You know, you can do a very pure, <sighs> direct what is the shape of the flower, you know, what is the What's the edge of that flower what's the what's the the value the the light the darkness of it what's the color what's the texture and just just looking specifically at those very simple aspects of of the plant really helps to get one into that that mode so I'm not looking at it and thinking about the plant I'm just experiencing it and it's a meditation, and this is not you know this is. It's natural to us, but we've gotten far from it, mm.
2: yeah. you
1: know, uh, um, but I have my own reaction to lilac, and I, I, I experience the, the, the smell, I, I enjoy the smell, it feels good, and, you know, this particular plant, I'm not sure I want it in this location, you know, so that thought comes in, and I, and I wonder, all right, okay, so there's that thought. And I let that thought float by, and I go back to what am I directly experiencing. I see, I see the bark and how the bark has different textures in different places, and I notice that, that it's got opposite branching, and some of the branches die, so it sometimes looks like it's alternate branching. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's, uh, it's casting a light shade. It's, it's got dappled shade underneath it, and the plants underneath it are enjoying that, it looks like. Because it it's hot today.
0: Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for playing with us.
2: Yeah.
0: The, You're welcome. I, thank I, you. Yeah. I imagine that, that play has a big part in your work.
1: <laughs> well, you know, primates learn best when we play. That's, That's right. how, actually, most mammals, you know, they play, they, 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 a kitten will play at stalking. They, you know, if you have a bunch of kittens or dogs, they'll play at stalking and wrestling, and, you know, they're, they're developing their skill for becoming hunters. Um, and, uh, you know, this, this observation has informed the way I teach. I try to make it fun because we learn best when we play. Um, So yeah, play is really important, and uh, and and it's 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 best if we feel joy. We're 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 more functional when we're when we're in a joyful place.
0: So many times when I uh, I'm hiking and being with me in it or her whatever, uh, I see ecstasy and I feel ecstasy. Um, what does the word ecstasy evoke for you?
1: Um, ecstasy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, so I feel a little lift in my heart and, uh, kind of a clarity in my mind when I think about ecstasy and have a little touch of, touchstone of, of that. Yeah. it's an experience. So it's 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 connection.
0: It's connection. Thank you. Beautiful. It's the deepest, connect- I feel ecstasy when I'm experiencing the deepest connection. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, and that's, you know, for me, forest gardening is a way of reconnecting us. Yes. And, and, uh, and helping us to understand. It gives us direct feedback. I mean, if we get into a con- control freak mode, our garden will tell us if we pay attention that we're, that we're acting out. Because we'll end up having more work to
0: do. <laughs> less play. Control means That's less really play. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So. so. let's come back to the because um, we've been uh, been wonderfully playful and poetic. but it says here that during class you teach niche analysis. Guild build, ecological analogs, patch design, or other processes. Yes. Oh, those terms baffle me, but could you talk about <laughs> that?
1: <laughs> well, as Wendell Berry said, it's the baffled stream, the thing. So, uh, you know, uh, niche, anal- or niche analysis, yes, to be more, more properly French about it. Every plant or animal has its niche, including us, including me and you. Mm -hmm. And uh, Bill Mollison in Permaculture talks about needs and yields analysis. And I was trying to draw the connections and make sure I was connecting what I was writing about in the Forest Gardens book with the science of ecology. And I realized that when we're analyzing the the yields or needs or tolerances or preferences of a species, that we're saying, here's what its niche is. And so... Niche analysis is simply making a list, a robust list of what are the needs and preferences and tolerances and allies and predators and characteristics and products or yields, behaviors, and the core strategy of a species. And the more we understand that, the better we can design with and for that species. Mm -hmm. So European pair, for example, you know, prefers a, a... Soil pH of you know six to six point five. It tolerates clay. It it doesn't like a lot of nitrogen in the soil, but it needs a lot of calcium. It needs about two gallons per square foot of soil a week of irrigation, which is a lot of water. Um, it casts a mildly dense shade. It flowers and then it leaves out. Some things do the opposite. Um, you know, all these are characteristics that it's good for us to know about to design for and with European pear. And if we ignore those realities, then we're going to cause stress. And if we cause stress for that tree, then that makes work for us. Mm. Mm. Or we get less yield. And if we understand that it gives off a moderately dense, dense shade, then we can say, oh, what else? What do, what do we want to plant in our garden that likes moderately dense, dense shade? And then we can use that natural byproduct of the of the Asian pair, of the, of the European pair, to help somebody else without causing any stress at all to the pair the, the tree. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so what we're, de- what we're design- trying to do by doing niche analysis is to design harmonious systems where everything is having its needs met and there's very little stress on things, only the stresses that we need. I mean, we need to stress ourselves, There's a little bit of exercise is good for us, right? We don't want the un- undue stress, the stress versus strain. I guess strain might be what we, what we don't want. And so we want to design systems that reduce stress, increase harmony, and by understanding the niche of something, we can do that. When we start looking and putting species together in such a way that the needs of one element are meeting the, 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 are being met by the yields of another, then we're creating a certain kind of guild. Now, in permaculture the word guild is actually misused in my opinion quite a lot. And people actually say guild when they mean polyculture. A polyculture, like I said earlier, being when you have more than one species growing in one patch of ground. That's all a polyculture is. It doesn't have to be an effective polyculture. It could be a terrible polyculture that'll not function very well, but it's still a polyculture. But we want we want to have effective polycultures in our gardens. So we want to have less competition. We want to have functional interconnection where the needs of one element are being met by the yield of another. And so when we have a a guild of species that are functionally interconnected where the needs and yields are connecting, we're creating what I call a mutual support guild. When we're designing a polyculture of plants where they are dividing up their roots, the root space, they all have different root patterns. They have some are deep-rooted, some are shallow-rooted, some are middle-of-the-road-rooted, then you're reducing competition, and that's what I call a resource partitioning guild.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And so by doing niche analysis, it helps us to design these kinds of guilds within our polycultures.
0: I guess... That that
1: is when we have an effective polyculture, is if the polyculture is composed of those kinds of guilds.
0: I guess uh, plants don't have religions to defend or <laughs> or belief systems to prove. What would you say?
2: I don't know.
0: Yeah. Right.
1: Okay. I don't know. It's but, possible.
0: But because I'm thinking about uh, how uh, when civilization, so to speak, quote unquote, works, it's it, it like in Sarajevo or Constantinople or whatever. It's when all kinds of belief systems and religions could could uh, cohabit together, yeah,
2: yeah. In,
0: in acceptance. So maybe we could say that's that's what happens in a in a garden and in a forest, yeah. Is that- well, you know,
1: it's not, it's not, it's not all lovey-dovey out there. I mean, in, in the forest, there is competition happening, and and you know, some trees are getting getting are getting out competed to extermination and so on. You know, so it's 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 rough and tumble, but cooperation is much more prevalent than our cultural our cultural baggage and 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 and, and, and self talk. Uh, lets us Let us know, because you know you can think about it competition is good, competition is good, competition is good well the multinational corporations know that they don't want to be competing with each other they're they they're cooperating like crazy
0: yeah, that's true actually, I hadn't thought about that
1: they're telling us that competition is good so they can control and 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 compete us and 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 cooperate to to get all the cash so
0: Right the way right, right they're cooperating, I hadn't thought about that, yep, so um speak to us a little bit about what you what you know about medicinal plants
1: Well, it's not my speciality um, but a critical component I mean pharmaceuticals is one of the seven fs that I put in there, and I do spell it with an f in this case you pharm- do. pharmaceutical um, but um you know they're a really critical piece. I mean, in in fact, if you're if in, in my region especially, if you're going to have a, a very woodsy ecosystem that you're that you're, that you're growing stuff in, it, you know, you're mostly going to have medicinals in the understory, not edible, because you can't harvest that much food out of out of a, a shady a shady area. So. Uh, You can get some, but, you know, a lot of the best edibles for shade, you can't harvest a lot of because you destroy the population. You can only harvest a small percentage. Um, But uh, medicinals, on the other hand, you know, you don't need a lot of plant necessarily, like ginseng or golden steel. You don't need a lot of plant to make a lot of tincture. And so it can be a very high-value yield out of a a woodland ecosystem. But there's also a lot of sun-loving medicinals, and so it's a really critical component. We need, we need all the, all those different phytochemicals, the plant chemicals that, that plants make are really critical for our health. And actually, you know, Robert Hart, who is one of the first modern Western temperate climate forest gardeners, or if not the first, um, he, he really, uh, talked about how having a diverse, uh, plant diet was really critical. Um, to having a diverse array of chemicals, you know, of those plant chemicals going through mm-hmm. your system to do their do all their different functions in, in the body, and I think that's really true.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, you know, even herbal teas and so on, as a as a dietary thing rather than a medicinal thing, is actually medicinal. You know, it's just to get that diversity in there. So, so it's really it's really important stuff, and I, I you know, we have, do have to be careful because, you know, there are plants that that. Uh, bioaccumulate toxins and stuff that we have to be careful of, and of course, you know, we we know almost nothing about that. But um, you know, a lot of people used to eat comfrey, and then it came out in the in the eighties, some study that said that if you ate comfrey, it would cause cancer, and so a lot of people stopped eating comfrey, um, right. but still use it medicinally. You know, and and so it's a great medicinal plant, and who knows, maybe it's okay to eat, you know, but they're just feeding rats that were prone to grow tumors huge quantities of country, and they got tumors, of course. So, I right, don't know. Right, haven't right. evaluated that study myself yet. But, you know, those are some of the factors we've got to be thinking about.
0: So, um, I would like to um, ask you just a few minutes if you'd like to talk about your latest book.
2: Ah.
1: Well, Mark Kravchak, uh nice Polish name, he lives up in Burlington, Vermont. He and I are working on a book that happened for a couple years on coppice agroforestry with coppice, C-O-P-P-I-C-E. Coppicing is the cutting of a woody plant, a tree or shrub, to the ground uh, for the purpose of letting it re-sprout. Uh, and when you get the right species, they will re-sprout quite rapidly because you have a huge, a huge root system under the ground that, with a lot of stored carbohydrate, and those things can grow very fast. And actually, compass material was the foundation of most civilization uh, in the world. In my, in my, in my, that's a, a, a theory of mine. Which, uh, I'm doing a lot of research on that piece right now, actually, uh, as I'm editing the fourth draft of the history chapter um, uh, for the book. Um, but it looks like uh, compassing... Uh, predated the invention of agriculture, and my guess is that uh, for mm-hmm. the Mesolithic peoples who were copsting it helped them figure out how to do agriculture. Wow. And um, there's, I, I think there's, there's, pretty, pretty good, there's a pretty good surmise, that one, because um, there's data going back in, in Denmark and Ireland and Britain that copsting was happening uh, 6,000 be- uh, know, B.C., uh, well, before you know, two thousand years before the invention of agriculture in those regions. So, um, uh, it's it's a really critical piece, and you can get a lot of different fiber materials, construction materials, uh, craft, you know, weapons, tool handles, uh, you know, just just so much stuff. Fodder for animals. It's really it's really uh, a really important piece, and it's it's uh, in my opinion as we as we deal with the whole climate chaos issue and trying to keep carbon in the ground and, or get it in the ground out of the atmosphere, uh, carbon farming, as we call it, uh, going from a hydrocarbon economy to a carbohydrate economy, I think woody, woody compassing is going to become a key component of that carbohydrate economy. And so while we have the oil to live on, we really have to do our research and figure out how it works again because we don't know much, really, and we don't really know how it works very well with the North American species in particular. We better, we better get busy and start learning that. So that's what Mark and I are working on doing, putting together a really well-researched reference on that topic. So,
0: Okay, okay. So, Dave Jack, uh, Saturday and Sunday, all-day workshop, June 1st and 2nd at the community college in Santa Fe, gardening like the forest, designing edible habitats and perennial polycultures. Dave, let's get back to this, um, this situation of forest fires and how here in New Mexico we've had a lot of very big fires And also I'd like to hear about your ideas about what they call controlled burns.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, um, there's a book that I highly recommend people read called 1491 by Charles Mann Mm. in which he basically makes a case based on uh, a bunch of research that's been done in, in, uh, what do they call it, uh, ecological archaeology paleo ecology et cetera, where there's been this kind of synthesis that's that, that occurring in those fields that indicates that the vast majority of north and south america were managed landscapes uh, prior to columbus's arrival in fourteen ninety two which is why the book is called fourteen ninety one what was it like in fourteen ninety one even the even the, the, uh, the tropical rainforest down in Brazil and, and Ecuador and Bolivia, there's very good evidence that large portions of those, if not most of them, were managed by fire by the native peoples. And, um, you know, they made, the native people made their mistakes. They were human beings, too. They weren't perfect. Uh, the noble savage is a, is a myth, and there's another way of separating ourselves. But um, they were using fire, and they, they had understood how fire operated, and particularly in what we call brittle environments where there's low rainfall uh fire is a critical piece of having a healthy ecosystem now i'm not super familiar with uh the new mexico landscape like i said i'm going to be getting a little more familiar before i give my workshop down there but it's pretty clear from what research i've done that uh specifically in new mexico that fire a was used by the native peoples there and b uh, that there's recent studies indicating that fire and grazing combined can be very good for rangelands in that region. And is the problem is, with with fire, the way we've been doing it the last 80 years or whatever, is that you know Smokey the Bear was talking, telling us not to have any fire at all. Which is again, it's like separation. Let's separate ourselves from from wildfire and make it as far away as possible. Rather than having a moderate relationship and, and, and letting the fire be our teacher. And so we end up pushing it away. And as we push it away and suppress fire, the ecosystems in that region build up, uh, more and more fuel. And then when you have a fire, it's devastating, like super devastating. And it raises huge, huge, it gets, you know, huge fire, huge flames and go, care, covers a lot of area and does major watershed damage. That is hard to recover from, but small fires, on a f- small, more frequent fires, a more moderate disturbance is actually healthy for an ecosystem, and uh, so we have to get back to that. And, and you folks out in New Mexico have to learn how to, you know, what that means in your landscape, and and it's going to be different in different parts of your landscape: the rangeland versus the the the, uh, the 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 low slopes of the forest, the south north. East, west slopes of mountain ranges—they're going to have different fire regimes that are probably going to be good for them. So, and depending on the species that are growing there. So, um, you know, it's a—it's a complex thing, Um, and you know, I'm sure if—if there are native elders who 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 remember the songs and stories of their of their elders, uh, they might those songs and stories probably have embedded in them information about the proper way to use fire in that landscape. And I would really encourage you to go, to go there and try and learn that from those, from those people. They're incredibly important teachers for us uh, in, our, in our different habitats around, around the globe because um, they were very brilliant observers and designers, actually, those people. Um, uh, so so that's, that's just number one. So, so you know, prescribed burning, controlled burning, I mean, control. There's another place where control comes into the conversation, but... Um, <laughs> You know,
2: uh,
1: you know. Good luck controlling fire, but you know, wise relationship, yes, and 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 fire as teacher, fire as as uh, as 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 ally, yes, absolutely. And and um, you know, I we don't have as frequent a fire regime here in the Northeast. Um, there's definitely some habitat even right here in my own town. There's a Pine Barrens area where there, the the University of Massachusetts is doing. Uh, prescribed burning, uh, and they're studying that, um, and and it's, it's it's really beneficial for wildlife habitat. It creates a mosaic of habitats, so you get a very patchy environment because the fire isn't a isn't a monolith It burns intensely in one place and less intensely in other places, and that's good for the diversity of the of the wildlife and and the and the habitat and the soil conditions and everything. So so that's something that we really need to have is a patchier environment to have a healthy environment and more diverse food sources mutton as well when you have that kind of mosaic habitat. Now, this also... Uh, well, I was down in Australia teaching uh, permaculture and teaching forest gardening this last March, um, and there's a story I heard from a woman who had a forest garden. She had a fairly large forest garden. Part of her forest garden had uh, a dry mulch surface, and part of it had green living plants and a fire came to her property and the fire just blew right across and burned across the dry mulch in her garden, That in that part of her garden, but the forest garden that had green plants as a ground cover, it stopped the fire. Uh-huh. So if you think about what is the fire sector, as we call it in permaculture, what direction is the fire going to come from? Well, where, where are the prevailing winds during the fire season in your area? I understand that in in Santa Fe, uh, there's three prevailing wind directions. Most places, there's two. So you've got northern, northerly winds, which I imagine are from the wintertime. You've got southeasterly and southwesterly. My guess is the worst fire sector in the Santa Fe area is going to be in the southwest. And so you probably want to have an irrigated forest garden with no mulch to the southwest of your main house compound as a way to stop a forest fire as it approaches, or at least slow it down and make it cooler as it approaches your compound. That would be one design idea. In terms of, you know, and, and then you have, other, you might also have, you know, a gravel drive and a pond and so on in that, in that sector, so mm-hmm. you can slow the fire. Um, there's many other things that you can do to prevent fire damage on your site, but that, that's a couple things that relate to Forest Garden. In terms of healing landscapes after a massive fire, you know, Fire and flood go together. You have a massive fire, you lose the vegetation cover, the ground gets hard-baked, and then it rains, and you get massive runoff. This is a problem. Um, and so once you have a fire, uh, one of the immediate needs is to do some earthworks or check logs or something to pa- repattern that landscape so that it slows water flow and lets the water soak into the ground to aid regeneration so you don't get that flood and, and flash flooding and, uh, and, and mudslide and so on. That, so that's a critical need. And by doing that, you then create, again, that patchy habitat where you're going to have slightly wetter microhabitats near your earthworks, and that's where you plant your trees. And eventually, the trees take over that job where the of getting water to infiltrate into the ground, and, and uh, you don't need those swales anymore necessarily, those infiltration swales. So, you know, and you also, you've lost a lot of nutrients in that landscape. It's all burnt. Um, so you want to have, you know, annual plants are designed to soak up highly available water-soluble nutrients. You want to put those in immediately, and, and so they can soak up the ash uh, and all the nutrients released by the fire. And then you want to get some nitrogen fixers in there and, and other dynamic accumulators. Plants that tr- will accumulate nutrients Some perennials that will then soak those nutrients up and hold them for the long term as trees and shrubs get reestablished. So that's a general pattern that I would uh, think of using in a fire-damaged landscape is to get some earthworks in there uh, or check logs or whatever. Use the debris left over, shape it to run across the slope so it slows water flow, and gets that water to soak into the ground and catch it more debris and, and, and prevents, prevents runoff, and then use those check logs and swales or whatever to... As place to plant trees to get the system restarted.
0: hmm hmm Okay. So, Dave, um, what would you like to say in closing to the li- <laughs> people who listen to us all well, over the it's world? Gonna,
1: it's it's going to be fun, either at Santa Fe or somewhere else. I might be. I really, I love teaching this stuff. Working with people, to learn this stuff is really more the way I look at it. And um, you know. Robert Hart, in his forest garden in Britain, he was, like I said, the first modern Western climate forest gardener that we know of, and he made almost all the mistakes you can make in designing a forest garden in his garden, and it still worked. So it's potentially at least almost foolproof. So don't hesitate. Just get out there and play.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much, Dave Jack. It was a real pleasure to be with you.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity and I hope everyone has a great day. Thanks.